0: Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for teaching us again this morning. We pray that you would help us to receive your word and to live as your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, if I say everything I intend to say today, then this will be the last uh, lesson in our study of the church. And Next week, I will plan to do another uh, hymnology lesson, and then move on to something else after that. Um, I might just follow up with something I said last week. Last week, someone asked how uh, a Christian might respond to someone who is trusting in baptism for salvation. And I I think I said that um, the best thing to do in a case like that is just to point that person to what the scripture says, uh, what it says about faith and salvation and what it says about baptism. And in Acts chapter 8, we have a clear example uh, that baptism does not automatically mean that a person is saved. What I said last week is right, and I'm not going to take back any of it, but I would add a caution to what I said last week. Uh, Imagine that you're talking to a person, and that this person tells you that he's a Christian. And maybe you say, well, how, uh, how did you become a Christian? And if the person, in response to that question, tells you about his baptism... That immediately makes you wonder, does this person really understand uh, what Christianity is if, in speaking about his Christianity, he just goes to his baptism? It may very well be that his understanding of the gospel is deficient. But you don't want to assume that without further questioning. If you change your question, say, okay, you were baptized, but how do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that you will spend eternity with the Lord? You might find that the person really does understand the gospel and is a believer. He just begins discussion of his Christian experience with his baptism because that seems a convenient place. Or you might find that the person really has no confidence of eternity. He just mentions baptism because that's something that he did at some point in his life. So I say that just to say, um, yes, we need to point people to the scriptures and show them that the scripture teaches that uh, baptism is not the means of salvation, but don't assume that a person is trusting in baptism for salvation uh, the first time they mention baptism. Ask more questions to find out what that person really believes and what you might need to say. I did get another question about baptism after last week. Um, I won't go into much detail here, but the question was about uh, the baptism of Jesus and Jesus being baptized by uh, John the Baptist. Uh, um, Let me say a few things about John's baptism, uh, not so much his baptism of Jesus, but just John's baptism in general. The symbol that's used in both instances, both the baptism of John and Christian baptism, is the same. Putting a person into water, that is the same. It's not unique to baptism as Christians. uh, Nor among the Jews was John the only one to introduce it. It was not unique to him either. So that external symbol is the same, and something of what is symbolized in both cases is the same. Uh, John um, preached a baptism of repentance, and that is true of baptism as Christians. It is tied to our repentance. And faith is involved in both cases. With the baptism that we practice as Christians, it's very explicitly connected to faith might not be quite so obvious in the uh, teaching of John the Baptist he didn't i don't think he speaks much about faith in the uh, um, recorded words that we have from him but it's clear that the people who were baptized obviously had believed the gospel the message that he had preached so there is some similarity but yet the two are different those who are baptized as Christians Are baptized uh, according to Jesus' instruction in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are baptized um, as part of our response to the gospel message that is tied to the life and ministry of Christ as the Son of God, uh, which had not yet been revealed. In the day of John the Baptist. So, our baptism is a different baptism in that sense, and that uh, uh, is clear from a passage like Acts chapter 19. We heard something about Apollos this morning. Before Apollos met Aquila and Priscilla, he was preaching uh, the message of John the Baptist. And Paul encountered some people in Ephesus who apparently had heard that message from Apollos, had been baptized. Um, find this in Acts 19, verse 1. Paul found these certain disciples, and then he questions them about their faith and their life, and he finds in verse 3 that they were baptized unto John's baptism. Paul says in verse 4, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, the baptism of John, we see from this passage, is not the same as the baptism as Christians of those who believe on Christ. The act of putting a person into water is the same. There is similarity among what is symbolized, but uh, the full uh, message of the gospel and understanding of the gospel that we have as Christians is different from what John preached, so that it is really a different baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? That's a question that John himself had. John objected to baptizing Jesus. Jesus had no sins to repent of, like everyone else who was baptized by John. Um, but when Jesus responded to John's concern, he said in Matthew 3:15, "Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness." That was Jesus' explanation for his baptism. He wasn't baptized. Because of his own need for righteousness. He was completely righteous on his own. He wasn't baptized because his submission to baptism is what enabled him to give righteousness to us. It was his death that enabled him to do that. But he still says it was to fulfill all righteousness. Here's one way of thinking about that. Scripture teaches us that, uh, as it's taught in the Old Testament as well as the New, that those who are righteous live by their faith. So if Jesus is going to be a perfectly righteous man, we know he is inherently because of who he is, But if he is going to live, obviously, in people's eyes as a perfectly righteous man, then he has to demonstrate the response of faith in God that all of us have to have. Part of that would be reception of God's message through his prophet John. So Jesus, to signify his assent to John's message... In other words, to show what would be the response of a righteous person to John's message, or what would be the response of faith in John's message, would be to be baptized. So it's not that Jesus himself needed that baptism, but Jesus, in order to uh, be revealed as a completely righteous man, needed to act in response to John's message as a righteous person would act, which would be with baptism. So, it's not that baptism did anything to Jesus, or even that it symbolized anything that happened in Jesus' heart, like it does for everyone else who is baptized. But it's part of his living as the kind of person uh, that God intended for him to be on earth so that um, he could fulfill uh, all righteousness, he could fulfill the Old Testament law, and uh, eventually it could be revealed as the Son of God who would die for us. That's a very short summary answer to that question. Uh, if we go into any more detail, it would probably take much more time than we have. But um, the baptism of John was different from the baptism that came later. Uh, Jesus was baptized by John to uh, demonstrate his Adherence to the message that John preached. Sometimes you hear people say that Jesus was baptized to show us that we ought to be baptized. That is not how it's presented in the Bible. Of course, if there is a, a new believer who hesitates at baptism, the example of Jesus might help that person, but that is not the purpose why Jesus was baptized. Another question I received was about music. I have referred to music in the church at least twice, I think, uh, during our study. Uh, Someone asked about it a couple of weeks ago, so I will say something more about music, perhaps repeat something of what I already said. Um, When we think about music in the church, We need to be careful not to see that as different from how we view music outside the church. Uh, There might be music that we would use outside the church that we wouldn't use in the church, but it's not because of anything about the music. It's because of what's appropriate to this situation. So any discussion about music in the church, to be really complete, needs to take into account everything that we could learn about music outside the church, and we don't have time for that today. So I just want to acknowledge that, that principles for using music in the church really are the same principles for music outside the church. There is no question but that the Lord expects us to use music in the church. That is very clear from the scriptures. But let me put this question. How do we determine what music to use in the church? If you are the person who asked me about music a couple of weeks ago and that doesn't sound like your question... I know, that's not the way this question was put to me. I've altered the question to give us something more manageable in just a few minutes. So how do we determine what music to use in the church? I think all of you know that there are many ways of answering that question in the churches that exist. If you visited many churches, you would find A variety of different approaches to how they answer that question. What music should be used in the church? Not all of these responses can be right. Nor can we dismiss the question by saying it's a matter of individual preference. Because what God expects the church to do isn't based on individual preference, but based on what he says in his word. So where do we start with the question about music? Who can tell us, in one word, what is the purpose of music in the church? Praise, Praise yes, but... That's not the word I'm looking for. We'll come back to that word after we get the right word. Worship. That's even further away from it. Worship is certainly related to worship, but that's not how the scripture presents it.
1: Edification?
0: Glory. Edification is sort of getting there, but not really. This should be a really easy question. I've talked about it at least three times that I can remember. One of them was probably about a month ago. So you really ought to remember it. Teaching, Teaching. there it is. We got it from the back row over here. Teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Got some help from your classmate, okay. That's allowed here. Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So teaching is the main purpose of music in the church. That's not just a New Testament concept. Uh, I'll read from 1 Chronicles chapter 25. This isn't technically the church, of course, but the Old Testament equivalent of the church, the worship in the temple. 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and Heman and of Jeduthun. Who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals? So there, the word is prophesy. And prophecy has a slightly different connotation than teaching, but whatever else it is, prophecy is teaching. Uh, we find it later on, in verse three, it speaks of these people who, under the hands of their father Jeduthun, prophesied with a harp. So music is teaching. In the church, it's a proclamation of truth for the benefit of those who are in the church. Um, the word praise was mentioned, and that's uh, that is what music is for. But we need to be careful that we understand praise the right way. Um, sometimes we think of praise as being primarily directed from us to God. That certainly is part of it. The end of that verse in Colossians, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, there is a God direction of our singing. But when you praise God, or when you praise anybody or anything, if I, if I want to praise a person, is the best way to praise that person to go up to him or her and tell that person what a great person you are? I can do that, and it might be an encouragement to that person. But if I really want to praise that person, what am I going to do? Yeah, this would be involved in it, but if in what context would I do it?
1: Okay, just just to that
0: person. If you're going to praise someone, you're not just going to tell that person what you think about him or her. You're going to tell other people, and we see that in the scriptures. Praise to the Lord isn't just directed to God not just me and God, me telling God what a great person he is. We do that, but we praise the Lord primarily not by speaking to God, but by speaking to other people about him. So the praise of the Lord is actually teaching. It's teaching other people what God has done for us. That's how we praise him. You can find that uh, in the Psalms in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, we call, we call that book the, the book of Psalms, which is a Greek name for it. A psalm is actually uh, uh, music for the harp. That's what psalms are. And that would have been the primary instrument to accompany these. But the Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is praises. You read through the Psalms, Some of them are directed toward God, and God is addressed in the Psalms. But some of them are about God. Many of them are about God. I'll just pick one at random here, Psalm 107. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who is being spoken to in that verse? It's not God himself. If it were, it would be Uh, something like, I give thanks unto thee, O Lord. But it doesn't say that. It says, O give thanks unto the Lord. It's talking to other people, calling them to give thanks to the Lord. The very next verse highlights that. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So our praises of the Lord are, are telling other people what the Lord has done so that they also can praise with us. That's the purpose of music in the church. It is for teaching. How does that affect our decisions about what music to use in the church? Um, this primarily, of course, is in connection with congregational singing. There may be other other instances of music in the church, but primarily it's the whole congregation singing together. And this is something that all of you have to think about. In some churches, only one person chooses all of the music that's used. But in our church, if you come to the evening services, you get to pick what we sing. So you need to be aware of the scripture's teaching about Church music and uh, how we ought to determine what to sing. And the question was about music, but let's, uh, we do have the words that go along with the music, so let's think about the words for a few minutes. If we are going to sing words in the church, and that's the only way we do sing, we could sing without words, but Maybe wouldn't work so well uh, what should be what should determine the words that we decide to sing? Well, it almost goes without saying that those words should be true. we shouldn't sing something that's false. Um, you might think That's not something we have to think about, because the editors of our hymnal have hopefully taken care of that for us, but they didn't do a complete job of that. There are two or three examples of things in our hymnal that really aren't true. Uh, Think of that gospel song or hymn, hymn that we sometimes sing, My Savior's Love. It's really quite a good hymn. Most of it is worth singing. But there's one stanza speaking about Jesus in the garden, and it uses these words. He had no tears for his own griefs, but swept drops of blood for mine. Is that the picture given in the scriptures of that event in Jesus' life? You read the scriptural record. He's thinking about the intense pain to himself. It really is his own grief that he is that he is, uh, uh, has brought to tears and to that uh, agony of bloody sweat that he comes to at that occasion in his life. So we do need to be careful that we sing what is true. And when we come to that hymn in our hymnal, we can sing it, but we really ought to leave out that stanza. That's probably the most egregious example, but there are uh, one or two others in our hymnal. So it ought to be true, but just being true isn't enough. Our pastor could get up here behind this pulpit and take an hour telling us stories of everything he did last week. It might all be true, but do we all need to hear everything he did last week? Or do we need to hear a message from God's Word? So just being true isn't enough. It needs to be a message that's appropriate for the whole church to hear. Maybe if you invite the pastor to your home and over the supper table he's telling those stories, that might be an appropriate context for them, but it's not what we all need to hear when we come together. So it needs to be appropriate for the whole congregation to hear, for the whole congregation to hear, at that time. The Bible has many aspects to its, its message, and some are more appropriate to one time than another. So there needs to be good judgment exercised as to, is this what the church needs to hear right now? We also have to judge as to whether... The teaching of the words is expressed in the most effective way. Those of you who are teachers have probably had to struggle with students who hated the textbook that you used in class. Sometimes that was the student's fault. Very often it was the textbook author's fault. Textbook authors are notorious for bad writing. I don't know how they get away with it, but they do. It's not because the material included in the book is false, or that it's not the material that the students need to learn. It's just that it's explained in a very confusing and complicated way Using twice as many words as necessary, because their publisher gave them a word count or a page count that they had to fill, there are ways to speak the truth, to teach the truth, even to teach an appropriate truth, but not in the most effective words. Actually, when it comes to the hymns that we sing, we should be even more demanding about them than we are about our pastor's preaching. Because at most, he probably has no more than a week to get ready what he's going to say. And he doesn't normally write it all out ahead of time. So we understand that while he's up here, he might slip up in his words occasionally, just not use the best expressions. We expect that. But when it's something we all sing together, it has to be prepared ahead of time or else we can't all sing the same words. So there's no excuse for bad poetry being used in the church. There are lots of good hymns out there, and if we find ourselves singing bad hymns, it's really the easiest thing in the world to throw them out and replace them with things that are better. That much for the words that we sing. Now, what about the music? Some Christians seem to think that as long as the words are all right, the music that we put to those words doesn't matter. In other words, in the teaching that's done, when we're teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's the words that do the teaching. The music is just extra. If you know anything about music, you know that that isn't true. Music cannot make explicit statements like words do, but music still does communicate something. Even if you don't know anything about music, what did I read a few minutes ago from First Chronicles, when those people were prophesying with music, it doesn't actually go to the words that they were singing. They're prophesying with the musical instruments. Music, even without words, teaches something. So when we bring this into our singing as a church... Let me say it this way, the music that we use needs to teach the same thing that the words teach. If you have a hard time envisioning what I mean by that, then you might open your hymnal to number 395, I think that's what it is, And think through, it's the the gospel song at Calvary, think through the first line of that the way it's usually sung. Probably every one of us has been in a church service where this song is sung, and people are singing about the years they spent in vanity and pride, and they're singing as if they're celebrating those years of sin. Now if you think of this same song, you cut the tempo and sing it it about half as fast as we usually sing it, it's entirely appropriate. But at the usual speed that that song is sung, the years I spent in vanity and pride caring not that my Lord was crucified are something to laugh about. Why is that? because the music, as it's usually presented, says something different from what the words say. It requires singing it much slower and more softly than we usually sing it to make the music say the same thing as the words. So without going into any more detail than that, I think you can see how the teaching aspect of music in the church does apply to the music just as much as to the words. If churches allowed this to determine their musical choices it would change a lot of music in most churches when you start with the idea that when we're singing in the church We are singing to God primarily. So it's a matter of what's between me and God. It's about worship and adoration. Uh, It's about our experience of God in the act of worship. When that is the place you start... You forget the main purpose of music that it's supposed to have in the church, and more often than not, those churches really end up forgetting God altogether, and it becomes all about the worshiper, not about God. It becomes about what gives us the right kind of worship experience, or the right kind of Emotional feeling that we choose to identify with our worship of God. But when you start where the Bible starts, teaching and admonishing, prophesying, proclaiming truth, edifying the body by the proclamation of that truth, Then you have an entirely different approach to music in the church. You have an entirely different kind of music that you're going to end up choosing. Because it's going to be the music that most effectively teaches. Not the music that gives people any kind of experience, not the music that people like, not the music that makes people comfortable but the music that teaches. It helps if you know a little bit about music theory and about how music teaches. But even if you're not much of a musician yourself, you can begin to make judgments about church music with the knowledge that it's supposed to teach before it does anything else. I think that's all I'll say at this time, uh, because if we go into any more detail, then we'll be starting a whole series on music, and it would be better to start that somewhere else than with congregational singing. So I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Is there anything that I've said just now that uh, needs clarification? Might be able to answer some questions if they're not too complicated.
1: The um, music that that um, has as its lyrics um, uh, scripture—I can think of a few of them that are very, very simple but very, very, very uh, scriptural. Meaning, you know, I I think of a few of them that are phrases of the Bible. Was very instrumental as I was a new Christian uh, in in encouraging. This mysterious walk that I was in, mm-hmm. right? Because it was very mysterious when you first become a Christian. And um, and it it doesn't really um, those songs uh, don't really um, sing to the Lord, but they repeat basically you know simple phrases like behold what manner of love to God and, behold what manner of love that's just a, just a random example. But but uh, a lot of that, I'm wondering, and here's my question, I'm wondering is, um, can music, I think, and the taste of music, I think changes over time in the Christian's experience as he matures in the Lord. Those same songs today don't really do what they did for me, you know, let's say 20, 30 years ago. So is there kind of a, um, and I think, we spoke about that before. Is there, is there maybe an awareness that for some uh, who come to the faith, um, they, the, that there is um, a real benefit for those type of songs that are very simple, um, and um, and then as, as one matures in the Lord, they tend to go more to mature, mature, maybe not mature music, but but more in depth, more more meaty, you know. With, with bigger words, <laughs> you know, like sanctification and and uh, um, all those all those things that a, maybe a new believer might not really be that familiar with. I'm just wondering about
0: that. We need to be careful to let the scriptures determine our choices for music in the church, not our own experience. So the fact that the Lord used something in your Christian life doesn't mean that that's the right thing for any church to use. Now, it doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing either, but God can use anything and anyone. Um, there was a time when He used a donkey to communicate His message. To A person that doesn't mean we should bring donkeys into the church and listen to them yelling at us, and think about that person what who who that person was, who was spoken to by the donkey he was an unbeliever himself, but the Lord still used him to communicate the message, so the fact that God used something really to bless me at some point in my Christian experience. I can be thankful for that. I can praise the Lord for that. I can learn from that. But I can't go back to that and say, oh, it worked for me. It might work for someone else. Instead, I go to the scriptures and say, okay, here's how the Lord worked in my life, but I don't want my life to be, to determine how I help someone else. I want to follow the scriptures. And when you do that, probably most of us will find that at some point in our Christian experience, maybe when we were quite young, maybe even more recently, the Lord has used some, I can say this, some really unbiblical means to benefit us in some way. I can think of books that I've read whose authors don't believe the Bible at all, but they've said something about the Lord that is true and that has helped me to understand it. I have to reject a lot of their teaching, but the Lord has still used them. That doesn't mean that I'm going to commend them for everything they did. So we do need to allow um, the scriptures to determine what we use in the church, not just our own experience or anyone else's experience, Um, about the matter of maturing in the Lord, um, when it relates to the words that are sung, there's a lot in the Bible, and we don't Probably no one ever comes to stand. All, understand all of it in this life. So we need to expect that there will be a process of maturing. And how do we approach that with our church music? Probably the best thing to do is to evaluate the words that we sing along with what the scripture says. The things that we're singing about, are they true? Hopefully they are. But do we sing about them more frequently than the scripture talks about them? If there's some obscure doctrine that might be true, it might be in the Bible, but it's only referred to once or twice in the Bible, but we sing about it all the time, then probably we're off balance somewhere. Uh, We need to find out from the scripture what are the most important things for Christian people to be taught, and then we need to let that determine what we sing about in our church. When it comes to the music itself, there's probably a similar process of maturing that goes on. The kind of music that's used in the world around us is not created in accordance with any kind of biblical principles. So someone who is saved out of the world almost certainly has heard and perhaps likes music that isn't appropriate for the Christian. And we can't really get into that without getting too far away from our topic. But to make make the answer to that question relevant, for church music, it's not right to do what some churches do, take the music of the world and put Christian words to it because that's what people are used to, and then hope that over time... They'll grow out of it. We ought to give them the right kind of music that teaches the same thing as the words. And over time, teach them with the Lord's help and expect the Lord to teach them um, how uh, to think about music as Christians. And it might be uncomfortable at the beginning, I know you've you've shared to me that there were our hymns that you couldn't bear to listen to earlier on because they were just too much for you. But now you love singing them. I think probably most of us have had experiences like that on some level. Yeah, and
1: part of that, excuse me, but if you, if there's a bit of. we are to understand what we sing, you know, there were words that, I don't know what these words mean, and they
0: seem very weird. Okay. Mm -hmm. And part of that is a matter of making sure we're choosing the right words. Part of it is also teaching people what those words mean. There are, uh, I've seen translations of the Bible They're hardly translations. They try to turn the Bible into the simplest, most basic language possible. That's maybe helpful in explaining the message of the Bible. But there are words in the Bible that really need to be kept in the Bible. And uh, we don't change the words in the Bible. We teach people what those words mean. And we need to make sure we're doing that if we're using hymns in the church that are not easily understood, we need to evaluate, is this a problem with the hymn? And sometimes it is. There are people who try to write poetry who shouldn't be allowed to go into print. But sometimes it's a problem with those of us who are singing to one another need to come to better understanding of it. Um, And that is going to be a process, and it works out differently in everyone's life. Um, And that's probably all I should say on that for now. Um, One other thing to close today. One of you mentioned last week the work of the Spirit in the church. And I think that's an appropriate way to end this series. Because it brings us back almost to where we started. Acts 1 verse 8 Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. The church exists to witness to the truth of the gospel of Christ. It does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we turn just a few pages back in the Bible, there's a lot of teaching from Jesus about the Holy Spirit. Just read one verse from John 14, verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. In the next verse, he identifies that comforter as being the Spirit of truth. God's own Spirit has been given to the church. We've seen him at work several times in our study. He, of course, is the one who inspired the scriptures that are the authority for the church. He is the one who gives new life to people. We are born again by the power of the Spirit. So our whole life in the church is the life of the Spirit. He is the one who places the various gifts into the church as he will. So he is the one who is put you in the church with the responsibilities that he wants you to exercise in the church. He is the one who enables us to do the ministry of witnessing. And he is the one who works in the hearts of those who come to faith through our witnessing. So everything about the life of the church is life in the spirit. We do not live apart from him. It's not that he makes us Christians in the first place and then leaves us to go on our own. If it were like that, we wouldn't get very far. He is the one who does the continuing work of sanctification in each one of us and in us collectively as we are perfected into the likeness of Christ. So I have talked a lot about what life in the church is like and what we are supposed to do in the church, it might seem overwhelming. But when you remember that you have been given power, that you have the Spirit of God, then you know how you can live as a faithful member of the church. He is still at work today, he is still saving and sanctifying people, he still speaks to us through the word and enables us to apply it to our own lives, and he still responds to prayer. In fact, I think it would be correct to say that he doesn't often work except in response to prayer. The Lord expects us to ask of him. He gives us his power. He expects us to make use of that power by asking for it. So if we are going to be a healthy living church, we need to pray. We need to pray for the power of the Spirit. And we need to submit to the Spirit as he reveals God's will through the word. And when we do that, we can be witnesses unto Christ. That ends our study. If you have any follow-up questions, please bring them to me afterwards. Um, And please do make use of that document I gave you a couple of weeks ago. I think there's still that one last printed copy on the back table. Or if you lost the digital version, I can get that to you again and keep learning what the scriptures say about the church, and we can live together as the body of Christ. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us one another to teach one another, to build up one another. We pray that you would help each one of us to do your work, to serve you, by serving one another here in our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.